This episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite is sponsored by UTSI, the experts in cybersecurity engineering for SCADA and industrial control systems. The protection of these operational environments is now more critical than ever, and UTSI has decades of experience designing and building compliant systems with the latest cybersecurity guidelines. From engineering to remediation plans to tabletop testing, UTSI has cybersecurity covered. They will help you plan and execute every piece of your strategy, including incident response plans, validation exercises, and post-incident forensics. Wherever you are in your cybersecurity journey, UTSI will get you where you need to be. Learn more at UTSI.com. Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite on the Oil & Gas Global Network. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. Thanks for joining us again. We appreciate you pressing that play button on the Oil & Gas Global Network. Today, I am joined by technology forecaster, speaker, author, investor. He's a strategic partner at Montrose Lane, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, faculty fellow at McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University, and the president of Digital Power Group. He is Mark Mills. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, delight to be here. I'm honored to be on your magnificent network. Thank you. <laughs> well, I can't wait. We've got a lot of topics to cover today. You, you have such an interesting background. You, you've been an uh, energy policy advisor uh, in your career. Now you do a lot of writing and technology forecasting. You've got a book that just came out called The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom in a Roaring 2020. So that's interesting enough to get into on its own. And I know you've been on the uh, the media circuit lately. So how tired are you from doing all these interviews talking about this book? Well, it's easier to talk about the book than just to write the thing. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not tired how, yet. <laughs> so for, for someone who's not familiar with that process, so when does a book like this begin? Two, three years before? Like, what's, what's the timeline? Yeah. Well, it, I guess that everybody has a different writing process. It sort of is... is for those who have or will read it, you'll see that a lot of the research dates back a long time in my uh, work in technology and energy. But the physical task of writing a book, and this one's a you know longish book, it's 400 pages, so you have to want to read a book book, I guess. But I got it done in a year. It takes about a, about a year to write, and then it takes another half a year or so to finish the mechanics of uh, proofing and getting it to the printer. So you end up pretty close to two years from start to end by the time that you know you've begun the process and it's and you're talking about a book being on on the street it's um makes it hard in some sense because i obviously was i began writing it before the uh, evil lockdowns <laughs> gripped the world for reasons <laughs> everybody knows and of course you're writing a book that's not just optimistic but about the world as it will be in post you know, pandemic, because the pandemic is ending, it will end. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not writing about the pandemic per se, but it's impossible not to write about technology or energy. And there's a lot of energy stuff in my book without being cognizant of the effects of the lockdowns and the, the destructions it caused to economies and, and the extent to which it changed behaviors and all those kinds of things. So I cover that in my book. And I went out on a limb, made some predictions 
based on where things would be by 2022, even though I'm writing those things in late 2020 and early 2021. And so far, <laughs> so far I've been right, but you, you never know. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I do love about your perspective, I think it is optimistic and it's it's not easy, as easy to find optimistic viewpoints, especially when we're thinking about the future of technology. That's really the crux of your book. Um, you believe that the conventional wisdom around how people think about the technology of the future and how that will change the future is wrong. Why? Yeah. Well, the conventional wisdom is the typical wisdom, which is very actually old wisdom, which is every time there are new technologies that alter the structure of an economy or alter the structure of a workforce, which is same, they're related, very closely related. There's a lot of dystopians talking about how it typically, especially with um, the change in the character of a workforce, how it means that there's going to be these dystopian effects of no low work for people. This began, by the way, and I quote uh, John F. Kennedy in 1960. Oh, it's embarrassed here. 62, I believe. It's in my book. I usually have my, usually I remember my dates. He commissioned a blue ribbon panel in the Department of Labor because they were worried about the destruction of jobs in the automotive industry because of automation mm. on the production lines. They worried about this in the 19th century. Actually, I quote a Roman uh, centurion and Roman uh, prelate who worried about automation in Roman times that was taking jobs away from his, uh, then it was slave labor, of course, but, but and he had a great line from history. He asked the engineer who figured out how to haul heavy stones to build this building with fewer slaves. He said, what am I going to do with them then? <laughs> I mean, th this sounds like, this is 2000 years ago that people misunderstood the effects of productivity. So technology progress at its fundamental level uh, reduces inputs of labor and materials and energy to produce more and cheaper outputs of a service or a product. That's the definition of productivity. It's what technology does. It's what it's always done. That's what creates wealth in the world. That's what creates new jobs, new kinds of jobs, and frees up people's time, the most precious commodity in the universe, to do other things like educate, entertain, involve in uh, keeping the environment and our health safer. All those things cost money, and that money and time are made possible by the advanced technology. So I'm saying in my book that that is the pattern forever, and the pattern continues. What really matters is whether or not the technology transformations are going slower or faster, because if they go slower, then the pie doesn't grow as fast, and we start fighting about money, which is what's been going on for the last couple of decades where we have sort of an interregnum between sort of great expansions in technology. I think we're at the beginning of the next great expansion, roughly equivalent to what began a century ago. Hence, the, you know, subtitle of my book about the roaring 2020s. None of that takes away from the fact that we can do stupid things like cause recessions <laughs> and have wars. As I say in my book, they'll happen again. And sadly, I was right, they're happening again already. Uh, that's what mm. humans have done through all of human history. But that doesn't change the fact that one can be optimistic about what technology's effects are in economies, um, but one can be pessimistic about our leadership's capacity to allow technology to flourish. That, that for sure, <laughs> that's, 
Yeah. That might be a subject for pessimism. <laughs> well, in your book, so you talk about the convergence of technologies really being the linchpin of, of the future landscape. Not really one single big invention like, you know, the smartphone or the printing press that's going to going to single-handedly change everything, but the confluence of radical advances in three primary areas. You know, what what are those areas and then what should we, we be looking for here? Well, you know, it, history can be written through the eyes of a single invention. The car itself was a big deal, or the computer, each a big deal, and each create businesses that didn't exist before, obviously, before they were invented, and create economic and social opportunities, uh, or even bad things, right? You don't have cybersecurity before cyberspace. So, you know, mm -hmm. you, and you don't have car accidents before there's cars, that kind of thing. But the, the uh, great revolution that began roughly around 1920, uh, it, it, it began a little earlier than that, but roughly around 1920, wasn't because of the invention of one thing. That's, that's when a variety of technologies all became commercially viable, the airplane, the car, the radio, pharmaceuticals and, and uh, artificial fertilizers and chemicals and polymers, these high-strength steel, all these things in different domains all came into existence not just invented, but were maturing and were becoming commercially viable. And if you wanted to think of this in a taxonomy, which is what my book maps out, is all, all technologies and all those technologies belong in one of three buckets, or three classes of technology. And the three classes of technology are what determines everything that exists in a civilization. You have information-related technologies, how we acquire, record, and share information. We have... Uh, Machine technologies, how we build things, how we move things, how we operate things, whether services or making products. Or, and then we have the materials domain, the materials technologies that everything else is built from. And if you think about those three spheres of technology, that's everything. And if you have a revolution in one of them, it, it's a big deal. New industries appear, new, new companies, economies can be propelled. But if you have all three having revolutions at the same time contemporaneously that's incendiary that's what happened right around 1920 and that's what hap that's what's happening now in the same three spheres so we have profound changes in our information technologies and they are in this case maybe the easiest way to describe it is it's the cloud because the cloud is not a communications medium uh, which we could talk more about but it's is different from the internet is the internet was different from a telephone it's mm. it, it's a, it's a profound change in information uh, mediation, sharing, and access. And we have new kinds of machines. As soon as I say what they are, we all know what they are, right? Drones are, are new. 3D printers are are new. Um, Self-driving anything is, is a new kind of machine. We have machines that manufacture at the molecular scale now that was not possible decades ago, literally manufactured by assembling molecules. And of course, in the materials domain, we have a revolution in play that maybe you could call Know, computational materials engineering. And there's a whole new class of thinking around a materials genome where we can begin to think about making materials that can do things that aren't possible in nature. Um, So-called metamaterials that exhibit properties like invisibility, not theoretically, but in fact, <laughs> real, real wow. invisibility from science fiction. <laughs> really crazy stuff. We make biocompatible materials, which is really amazing stuff. You know, most things that are not biological are not biocompatible. It sounds obvious as soon as you state it. It's one of, one of the longstanding challenges of putting, you know, things in human bodies, whether it's a, you know, steel splint, you know, a titanium splint, mm. um, 
but we have to sort of search for things that are biocompatible. We, we no longer have to search for things. We now make things that are biocompatible, allowing us to implant literally electronics and sensors in, in people to do things that just you can imagine that sort of sound like science fiction. So that all those things are going on. I map them out in my book, but they're not just that they're going on because we just invented them. They're going on as proto-commercial or early commercial technologies that are viable. Very much like what the 1920s was like, where very few people had a car it, until the Model T came along. Then the car age took off. Very few people have a robot today. I dare say nobody and a robot the way we think about them. Robots are clearly coming. We don't have to guess. We just have to look around. Use a magic Google machine and look at videos of robots that do things that once were in the domain of science fiction. They exist. Most of them are not commercial. A couple are. And that alone is maybe, think of it as sort of the, um, the tip of the spear in, in thinking about what's really different about the future and the past. The most visible thing, say 1920, was people had access to something called a car, very complicated machine, very expensive, mm. hard to build. We suddenly domesticated it. And now we've thought about car, by the way, car is not a new idea. It was a new invention um, around the late, in late in the 19th century. People thought about motorized vehicles for at least 500 years. It just wasn't possible to make them. Similarly, people have thought about robots, you know, untethered anthropomorphic robots that can operate in our environment for a very long time. Uh, so is Hollywood. But making them so they're useful and affordable, it's now clearly possible because they're starting to emerge. And that that's consequential. It's hard to really think about all the applications, but we know some of them. Yeah, and I, I like to think about this from the the future of work perspective, you know, not just thinking about you know more people working remotely or, or hybrid work or four day work weeks that sort of thing, but the, the impact of this you know emerging technology in the future. Um, there's the dystopian view of well, lots of jobs will go away, but it's it's also the impact on knowledge workers going forward. You know, if you think about the future of work perspective for let's say knowledge workers in the energy sector um, going forward, you know, talk a little bit about what, what kind of impact can we expect in the future based on all of these things that you're discussing? Well, the energy sector is in fact, the perfect example of the transformation that's beginning and why it's taken so long to happen because most of the, um, digitalization, if you like, and people here in, in that, or that construct or the application of automation and, and this kind of systems that have made it easy to get a rental car or a rental apartment, you know, the Uberization, if you like, of the world. That's been really comparatively easy to do in domains that are purely information-centric. As soon as you move into the real physical world where 85% of the economy exists, like the oil and gas industry, like the power, power industry, uh, automating things is much more difficult. The consequences are much higher. Uh, the costs are, are much higher. The standards are more difficult to be. The physics of it's harder. Everything about it's harder. Only recently has it become possible to begin to think in terms of automating things that are not just the back office, but on the front lines. Uh, the, you know, it'll look like a tipping point in the future. It always looked like an overnight revolution in the future. And it feels very slow in the present. So what we're already seeing is the talks about digitalization of the oil and gas industry. Been around for a long time. Um, Certainly was easy, relatively easy to do with supercomputers in uh, exploration of you know, seismic analysis. But to really make a difference in how you drill a well, how you manage things, how you carry pipes, all, the, all those things, how you weld things, this is very difficult to automate. You're, we're clearly seeing an explosion in companies that are automating some of the pure information functions in oil and gas business. This is hence our 
you know, I'm biased here. We formed a fund around this, but you can see it in the mm. data. There's a lot of companies doing these things that were not done in an autonomous fashion or in an, uh, an, in an electronically assisted fashion, not fully autonomous, but helping people. And you're seeing a lot more uh, automation start to creep into the, the front lines. You'll, you know, automated driving is going to be very hard on the public roads coming first and fastest off-road in. It's already in the mines, and it'll begin to show up in the oil and gas industry. When you're in a non-public domain, you know, much more constrained environments, getting the truck drivers out of those vehicles is a plus because we don't have enough people to hire in general. I want to train them to do something else. So it's not a way of destroying jobs. It's a way of enabling sort of, we'll call it the upskilling of people in, uh, in, in difficult places and particularly in the high risk places. I want to automate those as fast as I possibly can for all the obvious reasons. Yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit because you do a lot of advisory work in the energy industry, thinking about um, the net zero goals by the year 2050, the, you know, this, this uh, background of, of climate change that's hanging over everyone in every country, uh, the big focus on renewable sources of energy, all of this stuff going on. Uh, but there is, there is a reality of a remaining need for the hydrocarbon-based uh, energy sources uh, going forward because of the the sheer demand that's going to be driven by the world just getting larger and developing countries needing more energy and more sources. You know, I wonder if you could talk about that for a little bit. You know, how realistic are these aspirations? Number one, and then can technology really keep up uh, based on yeah. uh, based on the needs that we're going to see in the future? So, not to criticize you, but the way you phrase the question illuminates the challenge that we have in the oil and gas industry, so to speak. So to the, as you said, the remaining amount of energy might still have to be oil and gas. I mean, I'm not criticizing you directly, but that construct is how, how we're thinking about the energy world these days, right? Where aspirations for or love of or demand for non-hydrocarbon energy sources, huge amounts of money being spent on that. The world has spent in the last two decades at least $5 trillion dollars uh, in the pursuit of avoiding the use of fossil fuels. So the remaining, so uh, look, here's fact. You know this, I bet every one of your listeners knows it. Everybody keeps forgetting it. 20, 20 years ago, 86% of the world's energy came from oil, coal, and gas. Uh, today it's 84%. Or put differently, it's a two percentage point decline in two decades after more than $5 trillion spent in the pursuit of an accelerating, quote, transition away from those energy sources. Obviously, um, five trillion is a lot of money and uh, wind, solar, and uh, batteries are a lot cheaper and better and there's a lot more than there used to be, but it's not going real fast, obviously. In fact, the world still burns roughly twice as much wood, twice as much energy comes from burning wood globally as solar panels globally provide. You know, if we think of the transportation industry, mm. and we exclude uh, pipelines as a transportation mechanism, just count energy used for vehicles, 97% of all the world's transportation is still from oil. And uh, crop-derived liquids, ethanol and biodiesels, that makes up almost all the rest. All the EVs on the, in, the, in, the, in the world today still aren't 1% share of the transportation energy sector. So this is not exactly a rapid transition. It's not like, what, where's the remaining come from? I, I, I'd invert it. In fact, if we take the IEA's aspirational forecast for the transition, not the, not the Paris plans, which let's stipulate no nation is meeting. 
So the nations of the world are not mm. meeting the Paris Accord plans. The IEA's report that came out last year, putting out a more aspirational transition energy plan, which is far more aggressive than the Paris plans. If you look at that report, it's easy to get online. What you find is in the year 2050, after much more than $5 trillion is going to be spent, and the IEA's plans, if I were guessing a number, probably cost 20 or $30 trillion, probably more. A lot of money have to be spent. And in the year 2050, in the IEA's forecast, the world will be using as much oil, gas, and coal as it did in the year 2000. Now, if you're in the oil and gas business, you know, I've just told you your oil and gas use is going to go down because it's a lot higher now than year 2000. Mm -hmm. But if you're an, a transitionist, I've just told you that, that we're 30 years out and tens of trillions of dollars later, and somebody's still going to have to produce as much oil, gas, and coal as the world consumed in the year 2000. I would just stipulate that is not, where does rest come from? That's a pretty big, almost economically existential question of where mm -hmm. does the rest come from? And you just uh, had an article come out recently, just a week ago, uh, called The Invisible Energy Transition on, in the Epic Times, which I think everyone should read. And I'll put a link to it in, uh, in the show notes so everybody can take a look. Some fascinating data and facts that you, that you put in there. I'm going to paraphrase, but the, the one line that really stood out to me, uh, I think you said that, that you know, our entrepreneurs are really better, far better at creating new ways to use energy rather than produce it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you, I got thinking about this over the years because I work on both sides of the equation. I, you know, I like to forecast how we, the things that make life interesting, fun, cheap, better, right? Those are all energy using things by definition, right? You know, yeah. so most, most of what goes on in the world is to produce energies behind the scenes, but there aren't that many things in physics you can use to produce energy. It's just the universe we live in too bad. That's just, the, that's where we are mm. until we invent new physics, which maybe someday happens. So, it, yeah, I mean, I, as the more I thought about it, I thought that was the easiest way to describe the future is to keep in mind that it's far easier and we spend far more money and far more time inventing new ways to do things, use energy, than we can possibly find new ways to produce energy. So what that would say, maybe to, to reduce it to its most simplistic outcome is to use uh, the former President Obama's line, the future means we're going to need all of the above. I just, you don't have, you know, you don't need to be anti-wind or anti-solar. You might be if you live next to a big solar farm or wind farm. That's that's the NIMBY, which everybody, part of every industrial system, not in my backyard. But we're, the magnitude of energy demand that the world will need in the coming decades will utterly overwhelm our capacity to produce it if we focus on eliminating any energy form. I just it's not going to be possible. It's just not in the arithmetic, if you like. It's not in the physics. I mean, here's a, a, maybe the most telegraphic two single facts to keep in mind. They both involve the number 80. 80% 80 of all air travel is for personal purposes. Well, put differently, that means that roughly 2 billion barrels of oil a year pre-COVID is, is consumed by aviation for fun. Well, not fun, mm. but personal purposes, not business. So, And 80% of the world's population has yet to take a single flight. Wow. So, so as the world gets wealthier because of technology, aviation alone is a huge vector for more fuel use. Mm -hmm. um, on the car front, you don't have to be pro or anti EV. I, electric vehicles are not an existential threat to internal combustion engines. When you consider another fact of the 80s, so to speak, there are about 80 cars in America for every 100 human beings in the country, like counting men, women, and children, babies, old and firm, 80 cars for every 100 people. 
The rest of the world, where there are billions of people, there are about five cars per hundred people. So as they get wealthier, what are they going to want? Well, cars. Mm -hmm. So if half of those cars were electric, which not likely, but could be, say, that's a huge growth for the demand for internal combustion engines. Now, I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't ask you, because you do a lot of advisory work with boards in the energy industry. Um, you know, if you think about CEOs now at this point where we are, and there's, there's also, an, I've got another question I want to get to about just some of the socioeconomic stuff going on outside of this. But um, if, if you're advising energy and oil and gas CEOs now, you know, what are those conversations like in the boardroom? You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, most directors, public and private companies, uh, I would dare say vast majority are pretty rational. I mean, they understand facts. Some of them, because their business may not be in the energy business, you know, often you have outside directors. So they don't think about the kinds of things I just talked about, but you would tell them about the facts and people can go find and verify it. And the most common experience that I have sort of falls into two buckets with respect to governance. One would be, well, if what you say is true, that we're, you know, the world's going to need lots of oil and gas, why should we as an oil and gas business bother to worry about engaging the debate about the need for oil and gas? It's going to happen anyway. The world's not going to, we've already discovered that in mm -hmm. Europe and they've built more wind and solar farms than anybody on the planet other than China. And both those regions are increasing their use of oil and gas, not decreasing it. So the we have the evidence, we've done the experiment. So why, why engage in the debate about the importance of this industry? And my answer is, well, there's a moral answer. It's extremely important to the world to have an expensive, accessible energy, which means lots of oil and gas. So that's a moral argument, I guess. But from a fiduciary perspective, you might think it's better to keep a low profile. I understand that, I really do. I've been on a public board. I was chairman, CTO of a company I helped take public. I'm keenly aware of the responsibilities and the and the exposure. However, um, governments are capable of destroying industries and destroying companies. Uh, economies can be Sovietized and even a non, non quote, harsh environments. Very bad legislation can be put in place based on misperceptions. So by not engaging in the debate, the companies that we are fiduciaries for could be destroyed. In our, it doesn't mean the demand for oil and gas will go away. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that others might not supply it. It's just you won't be doing it because you'll be destroyed. And this has happened before, uh, even in America. And what one very specific and particular reminder I provide to anybody who will listen. <laughs> <laughs> We're listening now, Mark. <laughs> is that, you know, I guess everybody in the oil and gas business right now is enjoying the high prices, let's just say. I don't mean this as a schadenfreude. It's nice to have higher prices and make a profit. And uh, the industry is much more efficient than it was the last time prices were in this range. So... I dare say everybody is, is much more profitable by a huge margin than they were the last time we were in this price cycle. So, well, it feels pretty good. Uh, just keep a low profile and, and you know, control capital spending. The problem is the go governments can decide that those, price, those prices and those profits were ill-gotten gains and can declare them windfall profits and claw them back by law. That happened at the windfall profits tax law that was passed in the late 1970s. Uh, and Republicans also voted for the windfall profits tax law. It, wasn't, it, was, it, it was put into place, which criminalized profits that were experienced by the oil and gas industry because of exogenous forces had nothing to do with conspiracy on the part of American producers. It was because of the Iranian oil uh, crisis when the revolution happened there and took 
a few million barrels of oil off the market. Prices spiked by 300% over a period of less than a week. People made a lot of money, and the government criminalized the profits of Cloud in the Back. And if, and, and for those who want to go back and Google up their history, there were prosecutions of, of mm. oil executives and oil companies for um, you know, not following the diktats of criminalizing profits. So that's our government. This is not, we're not talking about China or Russia. We're talking our government. So I, I, I think the issue is important enough because it's fundamental to society and the people who under this energy and people who are knowledgeable in it and providing this service, in my view, have an obligation and even a self-interest, obviously, but also more importantly, a, um, uh, let's say it's a defensive interest in explaining their business, arguing uh, against tropes and memes that are not true. I don't mean that they're politically not true. They're just simply not true. The idea that we can rapidly transition away from oil and gas isn't an aspiration that we're debating. It won't happen. It can't happen. It's just not in the economic, physics, and engineering possibilities and the timeframes anybody's talking about. And we're, we have... Broadly speaking, and by we I mean the industry, seated the debate and has let let it, you know, le- left it alone and stayed out of it because it feels like you know we've, it it feels like it would be imprudent as a fiduciary to end de- of the debate. I think, in my opinion, I think it's a mistake, and we're beginning to you know reap the consequences of that mistake now. Yeah, yeah, and that that leads me to another question about energy policy. Right now, we are you know currently no longer energy independent in the United States. We got a war going on with Russia and Ukraine and lots of other countries are at least partially dependent on Russian oil. Um, how would you advise right now the administration to navigate through this? Not that they're going to take your advice, Mark, but hmm. if you could wave your magic wand, you know, what should we be doing? Well, I guess the obvious first advice would be to stop it. But I mean, stop yeah. the opposition to the expansion of oil and gas industries and infrastructures, which is what this administration has been doing. Um, and we all know the reason that that's being done. It's, it's, uh, and I'll take on face value, it's not animus towards the industry, it's a belief in a, in a vision towards eliminating oil and gas and using the alternatives, when, mainly wind, solar, and lots of batteries. The, the energy policy that's animated by uh, climate change to stop using oil, gas, and coal uh, you don't have to debate that issue to have a sensible energy policy based on what physics and economics and geopolitics permits. If we want transitioning away from our current energy infrastructure, we need to do it in a way that's possible on economic, social, and geopolitical terms. We have to be realistic about costs and timeframes. What that means, maybe to reduce it to the most <laughs> simplistic point, again, it's we need, there's nothing wrong with expanding, and I'm Personally, I don't like subsidies for wind and solar. I don't think they need the subsidies, but okay. If you want to have more of that because you're going to subsidize it, I understand that's a political trading card. But that, is a, that, that doesn't mean that it's a policy matter. You have to begin to oppose damage and, and restrain the ability to expand the market's appetite production for oil and gas. We should do both. In fact, if we were, if we were serious about a transition, you need two things. Lots more money, and you get that from cheaper energy by encouraging low-cost production of oil and gas, and lots more technology than we have now, which you get from more money, which you get by not, by not, by not forcing the economy to squander resources on more expensive energy. 
you know, you start the fact that I pointed out earlier, 84% of the world's energy is from oil, oil, gas, and coal. If you implement policies that double the cost of those things, you've just taken out of the economy trillions of dollars of mm. money that could otherwise have gone to more productive uses than getting the same energy product at twice the price. The sellers are perfectly happy to take the money, uh, but this is not good for them. This is not good for people. It's not good for economies. It's not good for especially poorer people in the world. The policy in America, if it's directed towards seeking a quote transition, should also be directed towards doing so at lowest possible cost. That's not the kind of policies we have in place today. Yeah. Great stuff there, Mark. I want to also not not lose sight of the fact that you're a very busy guy. You have a lot going on. I wonder if you could share with us a couple of the projects that you have in the works right now. Well, let's see. The two two exciting projects from my perspective, um, maybe they're not exciting for anybody else, but (laughs) one one is our, the work I do in our, in Montrose Lane and our, uh, in our technology venture fund, where we're looking at software in the energy field broadly, but also oil and gas. We, we touch on any energy, of course, but we're f- software focused. It's it's, it's, a, it's a vision that my partners and I had some several years back that this market would become an important one. And I think it's more important than ever to find cost efficiencies and way to expand productivity in that sector. Uh, and eventually our governments will unleash the sector. You know, they're causing a lot of problem right now, but I'm optimistic that we'll get back to sanity. And of course, what, as, a, as, as now a public writer, I mean, I'm engaging in meddling in public policy a lot these days. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm launching my own podcast. I'm joining you uh, in it's, uh, we'll start the first, uh, we'll broadcast the first one shortly. It's called The Last Optimist with Mark Mills. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I, I hope, hopefully I'll be the first subscriber. I cannot wait to listen. <laughs> It'll be that's, free. That's cool. Subscribe, but paying a dime. It's even better. Oh, that's incredible. Well, as soon as it launches, let me know. We'll, we'll have to help you promote that. No, Mark, that's great stuff. Hey, I got one more question for you. And I, I'm just thinking about all the work you do and the research you do and, and the various hats that you wear. Uh, you're a very curious person by nature. You can't do what you do without being curious about the world and being a, a continual learner. I wonder if you think back over the last year or so, you know, what's the most fascinating new thing that you've learned? Hmm. Well, I'll answer it in two buckets. I'm I'm not fascinated, but I guess we can, can, I I continue to be amazed at our capacity to fail to learn the lessons of history when it comes to geopolitics. So we're looking at what's happening in Ukraine. This is not a complicated, at the macro level, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in particular, but the lead up to it had a set of lessons that, it's like the old adage, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Mm. So that, that's, been pretty much foremost in my mind as I think about the geopolitics of the, where, where we're taking the world. And this matters. Getting politics matters because the technologies can only flourish in a relatively stable environment. But back to technology, the thing that, that's moving faster than I expected, and I forecast my book, is my favorite technology coming back to is the untethered anthropomorphic or quasi-anthropomorphic robot, the walking dog, you know, Spot mm-hmm. Mini, that that product is now available commercially. You can lease it, buy it. And uh, here's a factoid for you. The very first commercial automobile company in America, Dorea, produced the Dorea wagon, was a, basically a motorized internal combustion engine propelled, um, you know, horse and buggy kind of wagon. 
And uh, it's, they sold several thousand of the vehicles, pretty expensive. But it, in, today's, in today's equivalent dollars, the derail, derail wagon cost the same as Spot Mini costs, which is $75,000. And uh, Spot Mini is a product. It's a robot. It walks. It's um, untethered. It does all kinds of cool inspection stuff. It, you know, probably, for those of you who haven't seen Boston Dynamics Spot Mini, just use the YouTube's. And you'll find really cool videos, but it's a real product. It's a it's entering market. So robots are entering commercial viability. Untethered robots, even a little faster than I had than I had sort of thought might be be possible. And this year is sort of a tipping point year. to several others that are emerging following them. They're not alone. So it's pretty pretty exciting. Sort of, I'll call it. Um, you know, it's like the avatar of the whole zeitgeist to to get. Mm. <laughs> To, to go philosophical on you of what's coming fast that's really different from what's in the past. It's kind of cool. Very cool. If they make one that will brush my pool for me, uh, I might be interested. I might be in the market for a robot. That's that's my biggest need. Brushing brushing the pool or folding laundry. Those are two exactly. tough, tough tasks. I, I think my wife could get on board with that. Uh, I, did, I do a lot of things to help around, but folding laundry has never been my strong suit. That's why you need a That's why you need a robot. <laughs> you ought to be doing this, baby. Absolutely. Well, his book is called The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technology will unleash the next economic boom in a roaring 2020s. Mark Mills, thank you so much for joining today and sharing all your perspectives with us. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to, and good luck with this, uh, how this year unfolds. It's kind of, kind of a crazy one. You bet. Same to you as well with your new podcast too. Hey, and thank you for listening again to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your shows. And we will see you soon again with some more great interviews. Until then, have a great one. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.